KGB informer had written that my father broke the law or said something bad about Stalin or KGB. I don't know the detail, but I know that my father one night, the, the, the black car, they call it Chorny Voron in Russian, the black crow, uh, just came to, to the house and my father was arrested and thrown to the NKVD jail. Center of town, there was like a basement where they threw all the enemies of the people. Every family has a story, a legendary figure in the genealogical tree. In my family, this hero and patriarch is my grandfather, Isaac Yevalev. The legacy he left as a survivor, a family man, and a master portrait photographer has shaped my identity, my values, and my own career. This story is framed by two crucial journeys. The first was on a bicycle over the dirt roads of Belarus. The second, nearly 50 years later, brought us to America. Welcome to the Sasha Photography Podcast. Together with my father, Igor, we dig deep into our family history. Join me. Part 2. My father wanted to obtain his own place, of course. They were newlywed, the young people. They didn't want to live in this community, I would say. So my father started thinking of having his own place. So about 30 kilometers from, from Polotsk in one old, uh, you know, town he found almost you know destroyed or forgotten uh, structure he bought from someone I don't know for how much because that time people didn't have enough money so sometimes they paid with something else bottles of vodka or some other services or maybe pictures taken you know so he bought this uh, structure it was disassembled piece by piece, and every piece was numbered, and they loaded it on a huge trailer, and they had to bring it to the empty spot which my father was able to obtain as his new home place, his house place in Polotsk, that's just like, you know, 600 meters from the river, it's not from, far from, from Dvina river, so the trailer was carrying all this heavy load because the roads were all bombed and all destroyed all the load just unloaded suddenly to the to the side of the road and everywhere so he had at night he had to find a way to get it back together on the trailer he walks about a mile he finds the military unit and he was in uniform, so he asked the officer for help. So this, this officer sends group of soldiers, and for a couple bottles of vodka, they load back on the trailer all this uh, lumber and everything. And that's how he delivered this to Polotsk. He basically was assembling this house himself. It was not organized business to build houses, of course, so he had to hire 
someone to help him not only to um, to build the house but also to to provide the house with other things like uh, getting bricks to build the chimney and you cannot buy bricks in fully destroyed territory after the war so my father and my mom were hiring the the, the horse and the carriage to go to the fully destroyed buildings and with their own bare hands they were just kicking you know these bricks from destroyed houses collecting them on a carriage and delivering to their home new house i would say place and someone helped them to build the, the chimney and everything to be able to heat the house the winter in, in belarus is really cold you need to heat up the house you cannot live there without good stove and good chimney so so he was living still living at his father-in-law's house and in the meantime they were basically like from scratch building this this other house how long did it take them to complete the new house i believe during six months they were able to build the house and then also he planted eight apple trees around the house it was uh, the trees were called antonovka uh, this breed this brand of apples uh, grows only in Belarus and Poland it's interesting because it can survive apples can survive the first frost and then they should be collected and this is the most um, tasty apples you can find probably in, in Europe um, they're full of juice, full of sweet, but at the same time you need to wait until late October, for example, when you harvest everything. So my father planted the trees and also they had to build this little shed where they kept chicken and uh, other you know, like small animals just for celebration for any holiday they had to you know to get some good food on, on the table how did he know how to do all of these things i mean he had uh you know he, he lived in this little shtetl when he was growing up and then he went through the war um he had some you know a year of university how did he know how to build a house how to plant a garden like where did he learn all these skills that's what an amazing story i never known how he got all these skills because uh, for me, my father is able to do anything. So he, he still sometimes says, why are you doing this by yourself? I can help. No matter that he is 92. So he was able to learn and do many things with his own hands. I don't know how he learned this stuff. I know that even in his profession as a photographer, only three times he took special courses to get some advanced knowledge 
about the photography, like portrait studio photography, about the lighting, about color photography, which was the new um, that time in, in late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he was able to create the new method of uh, applying special coating above the, above the image which was glued to the wooden surface. And it looks like it's, uh, it stays under the thick glass. It's very beautiful. Now nobody does it. And he had, of course, to invent this by himself and find people who can do it for him later on uh, on very high level of the quality. So let's rewind just a little bit. So he it takes him like six months to build this house from, from scratch and then eventually he moves out of his father-in-law's house and moves in with, uh, with his new wife to, to the house that, that he built. And what year is that? It was in... Uh, 47. So he had, uh, at some point in 1946-47, he stopped working as an assistant to his brother. His brother still had the, the shack in the, in the market where he was doing photography. Yeah. And Grandpa decided that he was going to open his own place and, and do photography. Same thing, same thing. Same type of same shack, type of just a... shack, yeah. Was his brother... Uh, like upset that he was leaving or do you know anything about how they decided to part ways and I mean they became essentially competitors at that point right yes they became competitors and um, my father was in his profession he was really creative person for my uncle it was much harder because he was disabled actually person so for him it was much harder and there was some competition till the very end between them because my father was more successful than his brother and my father even participated in international photo exhibition and so on and so on. My uncle stayed, I would say, on the same level um, and he moved from one place to another. He changed the jobs, you know, as a photographer in different places. He was not so successful, but he still did a good, good high quality photography, just not so creative. Is it still at that time kind of that atmosphere of economic openness? So he's able to, to do that and establish his own practice? No, he was working already for government uh, company. It was... Um, it's called Artel Gigiena. It was again like combination of uh, government business and uh, business of different businesses combined from different professions like uh, tailors, photographers. They try all the services to combine together and that's why it's called Artel. Um, but the name was of course very strange. But uh, later on, it was renamed as um, special services for for people. Some kind of it's difficult to translate, of course, in English. So it was not his own business. He had the studio uh, given 
space by this company, but he had to establish, of course, the ads, like uh, to put portraits uh, in the window of his studio to attract different levels of people to to do a lot of stuff to make it profitable and to make money there. He started again from scratch. And of course the, the equipment was not quite high quality equipment. Time changed, all the old cameras uh, gone, were broken, stolen. He had to buy new cameras, mostly made either in Germany or uh, Russian-made um, cameras and so on and so on. Uh, he tried to do a lot of things which his brother and many other photographers didn't. For example, he did uh, school graduations, which was a big part of his business, because everyone, as I said before, everyone wanted to have picture of his first day at school and his last day at school and colleges and universities and the weddings so he tried to cover everything all aspects of human life in photography when he was working with his brother his brother's primary source of business was people wanting to get photographs for like official government documents you said to restore their their identities basically after the war and when Grandpa started his own photography studio, he broadened the types of things that he would document. So he would do things in the studio, like portraits, and then he would also go outside of the studio and on location to document like school graduations, you said, and other types of events? Yes, yes. And also he try, he, he's trying in his own... Uh, business he's trying to establish good relations not only with individuals but also with different um, big farmers i would say they call kalhos like collective so, collective, collective farms. farms so because they need the honor uh honor people to be like photographed on a special boards right and so on, so on. So he becomes more and more experienced in relationship with people, how to handle many different cultures, many different ages, many different agencies, and so on, so on. Uh, but it happens much later in his career. But that uh, year was, again, a very tragic moment in, in my uh, family because my mom became pregnant with my older sister and my father was arrested one kgb informer had written that my father broke the law or said something bad about stalin or kgb i don't know the details but i know that my father one night the the, the black car they call it chorny Voron in russian the black crow uh, just came to, to the house and my father was arrested and thrown to the Enkavadeh jail. He, in the center of town there was like a basement where they threw all the enemies of the people. And as I said, his unfortunate, you know, um, 
arrest in, in late uh, 1947 could stop everything immediately. Because what happens, the, the, the persecution of uh, people by Stalin's regime started in early 30s. But as an example, in 37, 38, I remember this information from uh, Memorial, this you know, organization which now collects all the data about Stalin's repressions. So in 37, 38, 650,000 people were just shot. So in average, like 1,000 people every single day, people were shot. So during the war, it was a little bit, you know, slower. It was slowed down because they started releasing many prisoners from Gulag, sending them to the war. But as soon as the war was over, the persecutions continued. So all these repressions continued. And that's how my father, because of informer, written something about him, he was arrested. So, so that's, that's what happened. And just by because of his brother, he defended my, my father. Because my mom was pregnant, she was afraid of going to the to this, you know, uh, NKVD jail. Actually, it was not already NKVD. NKVD was until 1946. Starting 1947, they renamed it as a Ministry of Internal Affairs. But the same people were there. So his brother, because he was well decorated, you know, veteran of World War II, he went to the office and he tried to insist on releasing my father that stating that he was not an enemy and it was kind of mistake or something just trying to defend my my dad At the same time my dad was under very cruel interrogation in the basement of uh, MGB the security um, uh, agency and uh, once uh, the young officer who was much younger than my dad and of course never been uh, in World War II, never fought Nazis, just, you know, pulled out my father's decorations from his you know, military uniform and uh, he was threatening my dad. So my dad was, took the, the metal ruler from the table and hit this guy across his head and it could end his actually interrogation and send him straight to Gulag. But his brother was very, you know, um, straightforward guy. He was really brave. He went to Ministry of Defense in Minsk and he was writing, he was fighting for my dad. And somehow my dad was finally released from, from, from jail. When he moved to, to open his own business? Did he know that there might have been some inherent risks like that to, to doing that? Do you think it was because he opened his business that he was denounced or was there some other reason? You know, the, the system of so-called sex thoughts, secret agents, was such huge. It penetrated the society so much that every neighbor, every... Um, person you meet might report you 
not because of he was a bad person, maybe, but he wanted to get some benefits, even some food packages. I don't know. But that was the reason some some people were reporting on innocent, absolutely innocent people. Most of people were absolutely innocent. So that's so it might have just been a random random person. Act. Yeah, random person. So he was released eventually from this interrogation. Yeah, he was released and everything returned uh, to the normal. But about um, fifty years, not fifty, maybe less than fifty, forty-five years later maybe yeah, 40 years later I was working with my father um, in a center of town and I see that one guy who was just walking towards us suddenly turned his back and it was so unusual and suspicious because everybody had known my father to this point and everyone greeted him and everything was really nice to my father but this person just turned his back and was looking the other way. So I asked my dad, who was it? And he told me that was the officer of NKVD who interrogated me in 1947. And I asked my dad, how come you can say this so patiently? So, you know, without any expressing any feelings, don't you feel any feeling to hit this guy to just to get back to the, to him because he he actually he interrogated you in a so harsh way and he said no forget it forget about them they're still here so he had known that these people are still around they didn't disappear even in um gorbachev's times they're still here around us so that was 40, 40 years later, and you were how old at that time? Me? Yeah. No, I was uh, 35, 32, 33. He was released from this ordeal, and he resumed his photography practice. Yes. Then my older sister was born. Uh, her name uh, was Laura. Uh, she was born uh, in 1948, and uh, my dad uh, was working successfully in uh, more working in, in good places, good studios, good photography studios. It was not a big studio, it was uh, like uh, the, the room where he shoot the pictures, and then there was a small dark room where the lab technician, darkroom technician, developed the film and printed the pictures. And first, uh, his photography uh, small studio was just a few blocks away uh, from our house. I remember that place because it was, as I said, the few services located close to uh, photography. It was like uh, the barber, the tailor, um, some alterations business whatever and photography was part of it it was not an art i would say it was still part of the service which people needed to document their regular life and was not an art at all but more and more people started taking pictures uh, every year 
for example, when kids started growing, you know, every year they started taking pictures at their birthdays, uh, their graduations, some collective farms, when they achieve certain levels of productivity, they honored their own veterans, so, so they started, so the, the life goes on, and the different um, themes started appearing in his, um, in his photography. So it's, it's 1948, and when, he be, when, when his brother uh, Zalman began his little shack in, in the market, he had had experience, Zalman had experience as an amateur photographer, and that was his main training. So he sort of relied on just experience, not any sort of formal photography education to photograph people. And then grandpa learned from Zalman and the way that he photographed people and he worked with him and then he ultimately opened his own business. But by 1948, he still hadn't had any formal photographic training, just the experience that he gained with his, with his brother working at the market, basically. Was it, yeah, yeah. what was his approach back then? Did he have a specific style or was he just sort of approaching photography as this uh, technical service, you know, like you're saying, like at the time it was just more of a, you know, like getting your hair cut and going to take a picture. And for him, it was less, it was not an art. It was just a way of, of making a living. Yeah, exactly. It was not, photography was not an art. If you look at the pictures my father and most of the photographers of 40s and 50s were taken, the people are not smiling. People are not smiling on the pictures. It was not a good habit to smile. Not because people had bad teeth, one of the reasons maybe, but also it was not a habit of of the person in former Soviet Union to smile. If you're smiling on the street, if you're smiling on the picture, something wrong with you. So you're, you're hiding something. You're not a good person. So that's why not many people were even on family pictures. Not too many people are smiling or look natural, I would say. They still look with straight face, like it's documentary, like official document. So it was not required that time to make people happy when they do photographs, when they get their own photographs, even on their wedding pictures or something. So then have you seen those early photographs? Like do any of those images exist anywhere that he did in the, in the you know, mid, late 40s? Not in... in from 40s, from 50s, I saw a few pictures, specifically my mom, of course, and uh, the family pictures, our family pictures, that's what I saw. Uh, they have a good lighting, so because they started using the, the uh, electrical lights and uh, good lights, of course, it's again, it's not fully professional ones because they were locally made something like that. Uh, my father was able to obtain these lights from different services, uh, like from builders or something like projectors from different, and also from the um, furniture builders, he was able to make uh, 
different boxes, different benches, if he needed, like for the group of people. He started using, probably he saw some other setups uh, for the kids, taking pictures of the kids uh, with the toys, with the phone, with uh, different like fruits and so on. So he saw probably some magazines. I know that my father subscribed the photography magazines from Eastern Europe and in particular from Czech Republic. They had great photographers, great, great photographers. And my father was the only one in the whole town who subscribed these uh, magazines. And also from Lithuania, they also had very good photographers. What was unusual in these magazines that people were smiling on the pictures. And it was um, like candid photos, not stage photos. So there were lots of pictures were really natural ones there were lots of nude photography so it's not pornographic but the beauty of you know women's body a man's body or kid's body it was unusual i remember lots of photographers visited my father just to take a look at these examples of the world photography so you think that he was drawing his inspiration from magazines and other places that he saw and he was basically he hadn't had any formal photographic training at that point so he was looking at things and basically just kind of through trial and error recreating them in his own studio yes that was one of the things and another one few times he was sent to Vitebsk which was like uh, Vitebsk county uh, it's the main city and he was sent and uh, also, he was sent to the other places in Ukraine for the professional training. The photographers there were well-known photographers, and they already started color picture. They started color photography. One of those, I remember one of those, my father, I don't remember the last name, but Haikin, oh, Haikin, his last name was Haikin, and he photographed his granddaughter fully naked, sitting on the polished like glass or table, fully naked young girl. And that picture was so beautiful, so attractive, that this portrait was sent to Paris on international exhibition. And it won second or third prize. Unfortunately, Haikin by himself was not allowed to travel to Paris to receive that, that prize. So my father, for many years, he warned me when I became a photographer, he warned me not to take any pictures of naked people or anything because it's not officially allowed to any photographer at that time. So he got a lot of... Um, observations. He was able to observe many other photographers working in different places and in big cities like Kharkov, Donetsk. It was these two uh, cities were the centers of the color photography back in Russia or Ukraine and in Vitebsk. I was studying in Vitebsk photography for three months as well when I became a photographer. They had great studios. People were very pleasant, very open. 
they have shown me all the different kinds of lighting, how to set up this light, how to set up this, how to do pictures of the group, of the couple, how to put the backlight on, color light, how to do special effects, how to work in the dark room, how to use this in larger equipment, how to use this in that. So it was mostly practical training. So you were born in 1953, and by that time, what would you say, from what you know, like what was the level of, of Grandpa's photography skill and, and his practice? He became the master photographer. His studio was located in the main hotel of the town, right in the downtown. Right in the downtown where the, the one and the biggest hotel was located. And that, there was his studio. And he had access now not to local people, the visitors. The visitors, the, the town started to grow. There was a huge plant uh, uh, where they, from the glass bowls, they made the, the glass textile. They made it for military purposes, for like submarines and for regular life. They let, like made from this material, they made the uh, fishing roads, like collapsing fishing roads. So the, the, this, the huge plant started growing in the town and more and more people were coming into the town more visitors, and of course they stayed uh, in a hotel. So lots of experienced people, government officials. So his, the variety of different pictures he was started taking. And also uh, after World War II, there were many, many regular anniversaries of the World War II, honoring the veterans, and he was doing the uh, uh, portraits of these honored veterans and they were placed for observation in the center of the town. Nobody else did it, just my father. These huge portraits, like, you know, three by four feet, huge portraits. He ordered the special tops to develop these uh, huge pieces of photo paper. And he used this method, if, if it, which I mentioned before, when they put on the like, special uh, polished glass, like that. So he was already located in the center of the town and everybody had known him already. That's what I say. People call him Isaac Photographic, Isaac Photographer. So he, he basically grew his business primarily through, through word of mouth. And it was a small town. How many people lived in Polotsk at the time in the uh, early 50s? Between 60 and 70,000. Okay, so it was, it was a pretty small place and, you know, everybody knew everybody else and that's how his reputation began to build through, through word of mouth. As he worked through the late, late 50s, early 60s, when you were growing up and you were a kid, did you visit his studio? Did you observe and see what, what he was doing as a, as a photographer? Yeah, I was really amazed by, by the photography, I would say. And I remember my first camera, it was called Smena. It's like 35 millimeters, really, really small, simple, simple camera, just the lens and mechanism to, to do exposure. So it was really simple. Everything, of course, manual, everything, you know, focus is manual, you know, the f-stop, everything is manual. 
and 35 millimeter. For me, I remember I struggled to to put the film inside the camera because what happens you had to use the roller like special roller you put the film on the roller and you put it into the camera and then when it moves it moves in the cassette inside the cassette so in order to install it you need to do it in the full darkness so i used the sleeves like a ladies or men's sleeves through which i i put the camera i mean the film in and so on and in the worst case sometimes it got stuck so you should do the same thing <laughs> so you were putting one hand inside one side of the sleeve and then the other hand one. through the other side of the sleeve and of a jacket and then the camera is inside and you roll you know you ask someone to cover you with the blanket or something just to in the professionals in a, in a studio they had special room where you do this because my father used uh, the cassettes the big cassettes with one piece of film like 9 by 12 or even the larger one so he had the special room to to install this into cassette but uh, at home of course you don't have such, uh, such stuff. but it was hard for for kids but i tried to do it and I remember I loved taking pictures, especially the springtime when the water from the river went up almost up to our house and sometimes water penetrated our school and the basement of the school and all the notebooks and and the, the, the books were you know floating on the water and we were just different boats trying to collect all this stuff and i remember even water was very close uh to our house and we had to move our beds uh to the attic because the water was staying in the house that's how high was water that time so so for me taking pictures was also very exciting new like opening the new world and i of course i visited my father I saw how he worked in the, in the, in dark room, how he operated under huge and larger. Sometimes he asked me to roll with the special handle it up to the ceiling. It was huge when he had to do this uh, through the nine by twelve film you know, to enlarge, make big pictures, portraits, and so panoramic. They didn't have panoramic cameras, so the, he had to combine from seven to 20 different images he had to make a panoramic picture of collective farm on the tower so when you observed him working and you took part in some of his studio stuff and you were growing up did you want to follow in his footsteps when you were a kid did you want to also be a photographer actually not i wanted to take pictures i love this but I wanted to uh, work in the technical field. I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to work with something like electronics, electrical stuff. Uh, I wanted to be electrical engineer, work with automated stuff. That time we've heard around about uh, kibernetics, about the robots, about you know new machines which can count. It was not called computer yet. 
was like special electronic calculators and so that was I was very interested so at the age 15 and a half I left my house and I went to the junior college in different town because I wanted to obtain the profession and also since I am Jewish I understood for me it would be really hard to get to university so I wanted to get first my good education in the college and if I am able to proceed with the higher education for the bachelor or master degree. Right, and it would be difficult for you to get into a university straight from school because because of anti-Semitism, because of quotas. Yes, because my my older friends already experienced this hardship. Uh, My closest friend, brother, uh, had straight A's in high school, but he still didn't get the gold medal, which was award for the straight A's at school. If you get the gold medal, you go to university without any exam. You don't need to pass any exam or essay, nothing. You just go straight to university. My friend, who was his younger brother, who also graduated high school with straight A's, during the last exam when he had to write his essay, didn't get A. So somebody intentionally did something in his writing to make mistakes, like to create mistakes in, in essay, like grammatic mistakes. And it, it hurt that time he was hurt so much that the first year my friend didn't go to university, didn't take any exam to go to university, and he was even drafted to the army because of that. So that's and a few more examples of my generation. So grandpa, did he want you to learn photography or did he was he sort of encouraging you to do what you were passionate about? He wanted me to be experienced photographer as an amateur, but he didn't want me to become a professional photographer. He thought that it would help me to move in society much faster and with more success if I'm an engineer uh, compared to his photography. And actually my father never tried to bring me up as a photographer. You know, he always wanted me to, to do whatever I wanted, whatever was close to my heart. Through the 1960s and 70s, as you were growing up, he continued in this, he was still working in this hotel, in the studio in the main hotel in in town. Yeah, he moved from the hotel to the bigger studio, again, across the street, I would say the main avenue in in, in town. It was much larger and it was close to the huge barber shop where most of the you know, ladies from town uh, were getting their haircuts or the the huge also like a tailor's shop where also people they didn't have chance to buy clothes in a store so it was all handmade 
So that's why his business uh, was close to where it was needed the most, because if you think about it, 99% of our world works for ladies, for women. Most of the stuff in the world is made for women, not for men. Men need just cars and some maybe TV and some other technical stuff, computers. But the rest of stuff is made for women. So that's why taking pictures of nice, beautiful, young girls, young women, and so on, so on was the main theme of his portrait studio, portrait photography. Visitors uh, of our town intentionally went to his studio to take these portraits because he was creating different lighting and different themes, different he always invented something to make it attractive to to the customer. So. And then was he still running his studio like a like a business? Was it operating? Was he keeping the profits? Was he having to share it with this trade organization, or did the government take a cut? How did that work? The government always wanted to take bigger cut. So my father, besides his professional, you know, approach to this one. As a businessman, he always told his bosses in the company that it's much better to make it like business-like, to make more money on this one by doing this and doing that, penetrating this kind of market, penetrating that, paying people more here, laying off the, you know, the, the people who drink vodka you know, like uh, lab technicians and hiring better people, more responsible, more professional, more reliable people. He wanted to get a bet better quality because he was working now with the huge lab where uh, like were six lab technicians doing touch up of the negatives of the film. Six people were doing only touch up because of impurity of the process. Touch up was really, really extensive part of photography and people were sitting days and nights just retouching first film and then retouching the image already on the on the paper it was really really laborious part of the business to this moment my mom who was a teacher for some time she couldn't work as a teacher anymore she didn't feel well she became um, also part of this lab personnel she was coloring the pictures with the special paint. We didn't have colored pictures yet. She was very experienced and she did very nice color pictures with uh, aniline paint, water-based paint. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine that my father was always insisting on assignment of certain lab technician to his only part of the business because he had known that this person can do much better than the others who in between the, you know, work hours just drink or smoke. So he wanted the high quality and to pay them more. And he wanted to make more money, but there were certain salary limits he could not, you know, over. So, so he was working, he had his own studio, but he was working like for a, for a, for like a trade collective or what was the, what was this organization that, that he was a part of, that that oversaw his his work and 
it was, he, I would say, 70-30. 70% of his work, he was working for the company. It was not like his own organized business. 30%, he made a contract, different contracts with the customers. For example, big collective farm or big other organization like military unit or, you know, the, the college or university. So he made a contract. But again, 70% of the money he made on that contract, he gave back to the company. But at least he was able to keep 30% of the contract to himself. Of course, his salary started growing much faster, which um, his company was not happy about. So it was a contradiction between an average photographer who made, I would say, 90 to 100 bucks a month and my father, who was making like 300 bucks, you know, it was a good salary. The average engineer made 140, 150 a month. And my father, as a photographer, without high education, made like 300 bucks. But he gave good quality. He was given the good quality images, pictures, and he was, he never regretted um, that he did uh, uh, choose this business. Because that's where he made his name and his money and his fame, actually. So he was well-known and he was uh, well-respected. And he, he not only photographed people locally in the town, but he also went on some assignments in other parts of the country. Yeah, there was an anniversary of World War II and uh, his uh, manager ask him to think about what he can present to the exhibition. So my father found the hero of the World War II. Uh, she was a nurse during World War II. Uh, her name was Zina Tusnalova. Uh, she saved over 45 soldiers within one day in the combat. She saved from the field from the combat field, the same as my father was actually saved. But she lost her legs and her arms, so she was fully disabled. And my father thought that time she was given the honor of hero of the Soviet Union. And uh, during World War II, even some tanks had the writing on the side, we fight for Zina. That's the right. So my father decided to take a set of the pictures and send it to the international exhibition of this amazing woman. Um, and he did this set and it was sent to international exhibition in 1967. And he won the money, like award, which he got probably like 10% of this award. The rest was given to the company. And he got this small gold medal, which he still wears on his suit. Um, I just want to clarify the the relationship and, and like how things worked in terms of the business structure, right? Because so he, when he left Zalman's little studio, he opened his own. And when he opened that first studio, was he immediately like obligated to be a part of a, some sort of organization? Of course, of course. 
So how did no, how did there's that? There's no individual business. A lot no, no private time. enterprise. No, 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 no. So when he opened his studio, he had to like register and sign up to be a part of some collective or some. He signs like a contract with the company, and uh -huh. they give him certain salary level of the salary. Mm -hmm. That time it was like six hundred uh, bucks till the reform in sixty one. In 61, it became $60 or $90. So it's 1 to 10. So they give you like certain level of salary and you cannot go above that one. You know that no matter how many pictures, how many people you serve, mm -hmm. you have the same salary. Unless you have a contract with external customer and your manager or your company should sign this and they, of course, take the huge... Right piece of cake so. so he was he was uh you said he was working like adjacent to a, a barber shop and adjacent to a tailor shop so is that how the the structure of of business worked in soviet union so if you opened a barber shop you had to belong to some larger umbrella organization yes of course was it like an organization of barbers or like a larger no, trade union or it's a mixture of the services that's mm -hmm. how they made it so in this particular organization they had barbers they had tailors they had people working with uh, uh, some building materials so it was like all services together it was the the, the way they designed this uh, organization so he was not a part of I would say creative zone, you know, a separate creative zone. Like photography was not an art; it was still part of the of the much larger service mm -hmm. team mm -hmm. which he was working on. So he he was from the very beginning always had to belong to this collective of service uh, businesses. That were all grouped together under this umbrella and it was like a government you know administered by some government people or whatever and he had to basically even though he ran his own business he essentially ran it uh, as an employee of the larger company and had to kick back uh, you know 70 percent of the profits constantly to them and so when he like when he went from his smaller studio and he moved into a larger studio and he like expanded his business or when he wanted to take on new clients, was he always constrained by this relationship? He had to request permission to do it. He had to request like funds back from them to, to do his expansion. Like he wasn't able to reinvest in his own business. He had to. He did not have an option to reinvest whatever he earned because it was restricted by the government. So you have to give up profit to the company and then they decide where to invest this money so that's the biggest problem because if he wanted to have a better equipment as an example or penetrate different market or to start making huge portraits or new ways of running this business as i said by organization to have this assignment of personnel to certain levels by their experience and so to raise the salary of certain people, to have the bonuses for people who work with high quality. He couldn't do it. Until the last probably five or six years when he became an independent contractor. Then 
he was making good money he was working independently and only I believe only 40 percent he had to give back to the government did, did you feel like as you got older and you understood more yourself about the system and about him as a, as a person did you feel like he felt resentment towards the system or do you feel like it was the system that was in place at the time and he didn't really have the perspective he, he couldn't have known anything different right he hadn't lived or worked in a capitalist country so he couldn't have necessarily understood that you know it's like the cave right the the allegory of the cave he couldn't have seen outside the cave and known that there's a better way a different way do you know how he felt about this structure that he was a part of he was really upset that the, the things organization couldn't be changed the business model i would say couldn't be changed that he didn't have enough freedom to run it differently but at the same time he tried to bypass all these i would say borders or limits by inventing other things for example he created a part of the uh, business which was restoration photography restoration so since the old pictures were getting brown and always always almost disappeared from the image because of bad you know processing and so on so imperfect process and I would say people understood that they need to to save their memories uh, to enlarge the small documentary pictures of their loved ones of their parents grandparents uh, some people lost during the you know repression the 30s and 40s and 50s and more and more people started coming to him asking to restore from the small image sometimes not clear um, and make it like a big portrait for, for the for the future generations just to see their parents and grandparents there was one uh, funny story uh, my father told me like uh, uh, the the babushka like they call her the, the old woman from the village comes every week to the farmers market to sell the chicken eggs or some vegetables and so on and she can see the photo studio so she brings the very small uh, image small picture from the military document which still has some drops of blood because her husband passed away in the combat during world war ii she wants to have enlargement the big portrait of her husband in civil suit uh, like you know regular portrait just for the memory for her kids and grandkids so she brings this small image, like two by four centimeters, and she asks my father to make a big enlargement. And since he started this restoration process, and he's using the new equipment, he takes the picture, enlarges once, and then second time, and looking under the magnifying glass, he can see the you know, the eyes and nose and features on the small, and he tried to reproduce it like an artist, you know, making some. Uh, artist work on the on the actual portrait so he works on this portrait for two weeks the old lady comes back uh, next like two weeks she brings more stuff to the market and she gets stopped by his studio and she says where's the portrait where's the portrait of my husband my late husband and my father just gives her this portrait and she says no it's not him 
this guy doesn't look exactly like my husband. My husband was absolutely different person. You did a bad job. I don't like it. Just take it and make my husband. I don't like this. So my father was really upset because he had lots of other things to do. He just turned this portrait facing the wall and he forgets about this particular portrait at all. Completely forgot about this one. He has many more things to do. So two weeks later, this an old babushka comes back and she says, Where is the portrait? Did you make my husband looking better? My father says, yeah, I did. And he gives the same portrait to her and says, yeah, that's him. So that's the funny story, but it's real story because 20 years passed. And of course, she doesn't remember this. So he did lots of restoration photography. So now sometimes when I look into the boxes with old images from my father, my mom, from their you know, library, I see if it's getting brown. I scan it and I try to save it. So because mm. these pictures will disappear in 10 maybe years, they will be gone. I've seen his work, you know, obviously his later work, because, you know, by the time I was born and he was taking photos of our family, he'd been doing this for 40 years. Um, and then there's some of his work, I guess, that still exists from, from before. But he photographed all these people, like probably thousands and thousands of people. He photographed this nurse hero of the Soviet Union that, that was a quadruple amputee that we talked about. Um, he produced this huge body of work, but it, it it's really not accessible to us, either because it was left behind in, in the USSR or because it was lost or destroyed or this is his life's work and yet it's not really around for us the majority of it you know probably 99 percent of it we don't have it we, we can't see it how do you feel about that you know i i thought about this until i visited uh our relatives and friends in israel they have every year they have on may 1st they have a reunion of all you know, Jewish people of our town who immigrated to Israel. And there were, uh, at some point, there were over 3,000 families immigrated. So every time I go to the pictures taken in Tel Aviv and I see these pictures, I remember talking to these uh, ladies and gentlemen and young guys and girls and everything. And they say, oh, we still keep your father's picture uh, when I was two years old. When I was 10, when we got married. So um, what happens, all his photography, all his images are now all over the world. In Canada, in, in Australia, in, in Israel. So uh, the actual library doesn't exist uh, in my home or in his apartment. But it's everywhere in private albums of people who who had their pictures taken uh, during this half a century. Hmm. Is there a lot of work that you think has been left behind in Belarus that you think still exists somewhere? Uh, I contacted the uh, historical museum in Polotsk uh, asking if they had sets of the pictures my father created for the 11 
1,100 years of our town, which was celebrated. Polotsk was one of the most ancient, three ancient towns in ancient Russia. Moscow, Kiev, and Polotsk. Polotsk stayed a small town. Moscow and Kiev, of course, grew to the cities. And Polotsk stayed a small town, but it was founded in 1852. So in 1962, my father was assigned by his company to create the set of the pictures of the town, of the old images, which he restored from late 900s, 2000, I mean, 20th century and so on and so on, and famous people of the town. So it was a big set of the images. It was sold on the streets. My father didn't get any money from this one, by the way. But it was sold. So I was asking my friend, who still lives in, in Polotsk, if this set exists. He said only one set exists. It's hidden under the glass and special, you know, uh, exhibition. Uh, some of the pictures are still... But there is no name of the photographer who created it. The same like under the portrait of this uh, hero, Zinaida Tsutsnalovo. There is no name of the photographer. Mm. Okay, so that's very unfortunate. But the people who got their pictures from his studio and they have their private portraits and wedding pictures, they remember who did it. Because he first, he created the special label on each image he gave to the customer. He created the, the name photo studio and the address. It wasn't his name, but it was Photo Studio, Polotsk, whatever. It was like a, a, a brand, basically, that he like created. A, like a big logo, beautiful mm -hmm. logo. He did it by himself. It was on every image. That's what he saw on, uh, on the magazine from Czech Republic. That's how every professional photographer marked his work. Mm -hmm. Like you have your Sasha, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. He put a signature on it. Yeah. So, uh, I know that, um, or at least I, I think I heard that since, since he, uh, lived and worked in this very small town and it was such an intimate place and everybody knew each other and, uh, my mom, your wife, uh, grew up in this town and you eventually met her there and you know built built our family life there while we were still living in, in belarus uh and and since grandpa photographed people on special occasions and when they came into the studio and he photographed you know made made these memories for people did he photograph uh mom and or or parts of her family before you knew her or before you were old enough and and, and met her Yes, actually, all the pictures, all I would say most of the pictures which were taken for Plotkin's family, they were taken by my dad. And Plotkin um, family is mom, mom's, mom's side of the family. Yeah, mm -hmm. the mom's family. Because when the family reunion, a special event, they, people are coming to the studio to take the picture. Uh, I remember the, the, the graduation picture, uh, I saw mom. Even I, I didn't know her, but I remember that uh, image uh, uh, of the graduation from the, from the school, and I remember her picture. 
So, and her older sister, Maya, I also remember her picture because my dad did this one and the relatives, uh, we had family of doctors, their name Nishtat. Uh, he was a fan of photography, the head of the family. And he was coming every single year, few times a year, to take pictures with his kids, grandkids. He was always taking pictures of my dad's studio. Hmm. I I've often wondered, like when I try to step back and and get some perspective about this whole like family history that we have. I've had this thought that kind of like keeps coming back to me about the fact that grandpa lost his entire family in the war and he emerged as a photographer during this time when it was like you know a lot of the town was still in in rubble and chaos and people were kind of scrambling to put their lives back together uh, and he did this service of you know he, he came up with this idea of retouching and restoring people's photographs um I've kind of always felt like maybe one of the things that drove him, uh, one of the things that motivated him or made him passionate about what he did was that he was rebuilding uh, a photographic record for people, that he was helping people restore their identities to capture their families, to really like renew this history for, for people. Do you, do you know if he saw his role or his mission the same way? Did you ever talk about that? Yeah, we always talk about photography uh, since I was a teenager. We always talk and he says, uh, you cannot imagine what happens. How do you feel? How will you feel in a year from now, in a month from now, when you take a look at this picture? Because the time passed. So you, you just take a snap of this particular moment, half or even, you know, part of the second, and it will stay forever. You will get changed. You, you never stop changing. You're getting older. But the picture, same. Picture stays the same. It just stops the moment when you were like three months old. I have my picture from July 53, right? Till the, this moment, you stay the same on that picture, only on the, on the picture. I remember driving my father and we were talking about photography and I asked him, can you imagine the world without photography? In, in 1839, Dagger did not make a first image, you know, on this uh, silver plated, you know, piece of uh, photo, photo material. So the world doesn't have photography, doesn't have video, doesn't have movies, doesn't have... So my father was thinking for some time and then he says, that's awful. Coming up in part three, we transition from my grandfather's life to the experience of immigration and finding our way in America. Now, this will truly be my father's story. That's next time on the Sasha Photography Podcast.